Uh, we are continuing our study of the book of Genesis. This morning we've arrived at chapter 19, and, uh, and I need to say before I read the passage, when we were thinking of doing Genesis, there were a couple stories in my mind that I was just scared to preach. And they're all in Genesis 19, or they're both in Genesis 19. And, uh, and so, um, so I'm, you know, let's just, let's just bravely go into the wild here together. So this is Genesis chapter 19. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's a bit long. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening while Lot was sitting in the city's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face toward the ground. He said, here, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. Stay the night and wash your feet. Then you can be on your way early in the morning. No, they replied, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he urged them persistently, so they turned aside with him and entered his house. He prepared a feast for them, including bread baked without yeast, and they ate. Before they could lie down to sleep, all the men, both young and old, from every part of the city of Sodom, surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can take carnal knowledge of them. Lot went outside to them, shutting the doors behind him. He said, no, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who have never been intimate with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do to them whatever you please. Only don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Out of our way, they cried. This man came to live here as a foreigner, and now he dares to judge us. We'll do more harm to you than to them. They kept pressing in on Lot until they were close enough to break down the door. So the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house as they shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house from the youngest to the oldest with blindness. The men outside wore themselves out trying to find the door. Then the two visitors said to Lot, who else do you have here? Do you have any sons-in-law, da sons, daughters, or other relatives in the city? Get them out of this place because we are about to destroy it. The outcry against this place is so great before the Lord that he has sent us to destroy it. Then Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. He said, quick, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was ridiculing them. At dawn, the angels hurried Lot along, saying, Get going! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else you will be destroyed when the city is judged. When Lot hesitated, the men grabbed his hand and the hands of his wife and two daughters because the Lord had compassion on them. They led them away and placed them outside the city. When they had brought them outside, they said, Run for your lives! Don't look behind you or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be destroyed." But Lot said to them, 
No, please, Lord, uh, your servant has found favor with you, and you have shown me great kindness by sparing my life, but I'm not able to escape to the mountains because this uh, disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, this town over here is close enough to escape to, and it's just a little one. Let me go there. It's just a little place, isn't it? Then I'll survive. Very well, he replied. I will grant this request, too, and will not overthrow the town you mentioned. Run there quickly, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. This incident explains why the town is called Zoar, which means small. The sun had just risen over the land as Lot reached Zoar. Then the Lord rained down sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. It was sent down from the sky by the Lord, so he overthrew those cities and all that region, including all the inhabitants of the cities and the vegetation that grew from the ground. But Lot's wife looked back longingly and was turned into a pillar of salt. Abraham got up early in the morning and went to the place where he stood before the Lord. He looked out toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of that region. As he did so, he saw the smoke rising up from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the region, God honored Abraham's request. He removed Lot from the midst of the destruction when he destroyed the cities Lot had lived in. Lot went up from Zoar with his two daughters and settled in the mountains because he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Later, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old and there's no man in the country to sleep with us the way everyone does. Come, let's make our father drunk with wine so we can go to bed with him and preserve our family line through our father. So that night, they made their father drunk with wine. The older daughter came in and went to bed with her father, but he was not aware of when she lay down with him or when she got up. So in the morning, the older daughter said to the younger, Since I went to bed with my father last night, let's make him drunk again tonight. Then you go in and go to bed with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they made their father drunk that night as well. And the younger one came and went to bed with him. But he was not aware of when she lay down with him or when she got up. In this way, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He is the ancestor of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also gave birth to a son and named him Ben-Ami. He is the ancestor of the Ammonites of today. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? We need it. Lord, what we're after in this passage is your heart. We want to understand you and how you deal with the world. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see uh, as much as we can see in this passage. Lord, I want to specifically pray for those in this room who have have pain in their lives, uh, especially sexual pain, who have experienced um, abuse, 
or addiction, who have acted in ways that are now a source of shame, those who have desires that seem contrary to what is good. Lord, I pray that your tenderness would just envelop this place as we look at this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm glad you're all here. I was hoping nobody would show up today. <clears throat> but I'm glad you're all here. Uh, I just, I, I want to just highlight a few things in this passage that maybe... Um, maybe are easy to overlook that might help a little bit of understanding uh, as we're getting into the sermon. Uh, number one, the first thing that we see in this passage is that Lot is sitting at the city gates. That means in the ancient Near East that he is a chief or a judge of this town. He's one of the prominent men in the town. That's where sort of the city leaders sat and they would welcome and sort of vet visitors uh, who would come in and also people with conflicts would come to them. And that makes it especially ironic when the people of Sodom, the men of Sodom are saying, who are you to judge us? It's like, well, I'm the person you appointed as the judge um, is who I am. So that's one thing that we may not know. So another thing that, um, you know, I, I didn't like have a way to fit it into my sermon otherwise, but I, this... Like the part of the passage that is the most troubling to me is Lot's attempted solution when the crowd is there. And I, I, you know, I have three daughters. And so he's got his two daughters and he, uh, he offers them to this like crazed, uh, violent, disturbed crowd uh, as a solution to the problem. Before we got into Genesis, I was talking with a group of other pastors, some some friends saying, I'm, I'm nervous to preach about this. You know, they said, what are you nervous in Genesis? I say, oh, well, when Lot offers his daughters, they said, well, you're going to tell your people not to do that, right? <laughs> like, okay, yeah, you're right. Yeah, 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 that's right. Okay. Uh, let me just name the obvious about this passage, or per perhaps obvious. This passage, especially throughout church history and societies that have uh, been influenced by Christianity has been used as one of the primary biblical passages uh, to present um, how sort of wrong and wicked homosexuality is. In fact, even laws against homosexual practices at different eras in history were called sodomy laws, right, related to the town of Sodom. So this there's an association with this passage that's been used to condemn homosexuality. And gosh, this passage all over, I mean, from the beginning to the end, has broken and twisted sexuality as part of what's happening in this passage, right? Um, we cannot deny that. But if anyone reads this passage thinking how twisted and wicked those people are. I want to argue that you're reading it wrong. If we read it thinking, thank God it's not that bad. Thank God we're not like them. 
I hope to teach you a better way. Obviously, the first and last scenes of this passage put um, broken sexuality on display, but these are symptoms of deeper issues. You see, this story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah comes up again in the Bible. Seventy times in the Bible, this story comes up again. I mean, nearly every prophet mentions it. Moses mentions it in a later speech. It comes up like on the lips of Jesus, on the lips of Paul, on the lips of, of the disciples, John, Peter, Jude, uh, John the, who, the seer who wrote Revelation. It's all throughout. Moses said, you will resemble the land of Sodom and Gomorrah if you abandon the covenant of the Lord. And that is the message over and over again. The prophet Jeremiah compared to the prophets of Jerusalem just before Jerusalem was destroyed to the people of Sodom. Why? Because they are encouraging people, in Jeremiah's words, to do evil. They're prophesying lies. The Bible doesn't, you know, one time in the book of Jude, it references the specific sort of sexual acts that were happening in Sodom. All the other times, the other 69 references are not specifically about sexuality. They're actually about something much deeper. This story is a symbol of the Lord's justice and it becomes, it becomes a, it's almost like a, a boogeyman tale that, you know, like a, a parents would tell their kids to keep them from doing, it's like telling your kids you're going to get lumps of coal from Santa Claus. I, it's a true story. I'm not saying it's a fake story, but that's, that's what it became uh, for the people of Israel. It's a, it's a glimpse of the Lord's justice. And we need to just look at that square in the face. We need to just, all right, feel that and feel the weight of it. And I think when we look at it as a picture of the Lord's justice, we also start to see a glimpse of his mercy. So, justice and mercy. Our hearts actually cry out for justice. We we long for justice. If you, if you followed the news about the invasion of Ukraine and all the different things that are, I mean, we long for justice. What is justice? Simply put, justice is when the wrong is made right. When the wrong is made right. In perfect justice, the scales are balanced. There's a perfectly appropriate consequence for the perpetrators. There's a perfectly appropriate restoration for the victims. When we're looking at justice like that, we long for it. Our hearts cry out for it. My favorite category of movies is sort of a, the modern twist of the spaghetti western. I love the noble vigilante. Like, the good guy with some crazy military past who rolls into town, you know, just trying to live a simple life among the simple people. And it turns out some international horrible crime syndicate is operating in that tiny town, right? And so, like, you know, he, 
he sees the sweet people of that town and, and like he has to dip back into his past and, you know, destroys them all with like a shard of glass or something. Like, oh, I love it. Like, I love it. You know, see, as soon as you like believe how wicked the people are, you just, you, you, I want to see them bleed, you know, that's, that's what I want. Um, so I'm not advocating that sort of entertainment uh, necessarily. But there's something in me and maybe in all of us that's drawn to punitive justice in the face of evil. I mean, gosh, like I pulled Aaron into one of those stories just recently, you know, a show that was that story. And, uh, and Aaron doesn't love seeing the, the violence um, the way I do. <laughs> uh, but her heart cries out for justice, too. It's like we... We had to finish. We have to see the, the wrong made right. I mean, think about our culture's longing for justice. To, like, where, whatever issue you find yourself passionate about, there's a, there's a community of people in our society who are longing for justice in that issue. Longing for it. I mean, in extremes in both directions. I mean, I just, I, I think of, you know, the, this, this recent case, you know, the, um, the death of Ahmaud Arbery, uh, the, you know, these men are convicted of murder, and then they're brought back for another trial about hate crimes. Like, they already have life sentences. And there's something, you know, like something in our sort of national psyche that needed to, to, formally say, no, it was more than just a murder. It was, there was more going on there. There's a, that, you know, deep, deep underneath that is a longing for justice. There's a theologian named Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian theologian, so go, go uh, Croats, Stephen. Um, and um, he's, a, he's a brilliant theologian. Uh, he, uh, he grew up uh, his, and watched many of his family members die and be tortured when there was ethnic cleansing happening in Yugoslavia. So he, he witnessed some of the most horrific things uh, that history, ha you know, in history. And reflecting on his experience and, and, uh, and what, how he understands God in the midst of this, he writes this, If God were not angry at injustice and deception, and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Right? But then I go back to Sodom, and, and this, this story is it's, it's different in a couple ways. I don't feel the same satisfaction in the, the sulfur rain on Sodom as I do when, when Jack Reacher, you know, just destroys everything. Why? Uh, one, there's the finality of it. In the spaghetti westerns, the te the sun rises on the town, and the good people, uh, you know, start to rebuild. Um, everyone is destroyed. It's never to be rebuilt. Whatever else the salt means, I don't I don't really know. Whatever else it means. Salt was something that in the ancient Near East, they would, it, it was like a total weed blocker. You would put it on the ground where you didn't want there to be anything 
growing. The finality of it. The, the other thing that troubles me about it is, is the, the, the theology of it. It's, this isn't the noble vigilante who's like, well, you know, he's a good guy and a bad guy, you know, and kind of like, use your bad for good. No, this is God. God is willing to deal this severely with wickedness. The God who is the same yesterday and today and forever, like Hebrews says, the God who, from whom there are no secrets, the God who does not look at the outward appearance, but looks at the heart. Do you see why the theology of it is scary to me? After all, who is Sodom? Well, let's let the Bible teach us about Sodom. All of these references to Sodom, what, uh, the vast majority of them is someone saying to the people of God, the nation of Israel, you are Sodom, or in many cases, y'all are worse than Sodom. Worse. The rebukes of God's people, you've turned on him. You, almost every time it comes up. Or go to the Gospels. Jesus is traveling from town to town and you know he tell, he sends his disciples on ahead of them and he says hey if a town rejects you it will be worse on the day of judgment for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah or later he says to towns like I don't know who's listening to him woe to you Bethsaida woe to you Chorazin for if the deeds done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah they would have repented I mean, my goodness, those who reject Jesus are Sodom. Also, we are Sodom. I'm not just talking about the wildly distorted sexuality and sexual expression and sexual confusion that is just everywhere, including this room around us. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about the way we, like Sodom, love violence and power and reject judgment. As soon as someone makes it, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge me? I mean, that's like, that's a great way to shut someone down, is to tell them they're being, a, they're judging you, right? That's, I'm talking about the way we, like Lot's wife and daughters, take the values of this world and use them to justify our actions and long to be there. In almost any sector of our society, there is a terrifying underbelly that shows the depths of our twistedness. As we were processing this this week, Stephen, um, I don't know if I'm grateful or not, showed me this, uh, this set of videos that's called the Informer series from, you know, a, a news magazine called Vice. I don't know much else about Vice, but its name is troubling. Um, but these are, uh, these are anonymous videos from people who worked in all sorts of different industries. So you get someone who is a, uh, a content manager for Facebook and, and his job, along with, you know, in a big cubicle with a bunch of other people, was to filter inappropriate content when people post things that should not appear on social media. And uh, he says 10% of what he saw was just deeply traumatic. Sexual things, self-harm, people harming, you know, doing terrible things to their pets. 
Others worked in the ho work in the hotel industry and described the things that people do and the anonymity of a hotel. Others work for giant gambling companies, which, if you can believe, are actually trying to get you hooked on their product. No, you're not going to chuckle nervously at that. <clears throat> yeah. Of course, in the news, there's we we're familiar with different exposés. You know what? And when the U.S. military has gone too far with torture practices or, or in the prison system or whatever. These evoke in us when we learn about these things, perhaps the same response as Sodom. Like, whew, it's so twisted and so broken. But somehow we still kind of keep ourselves apart from it. I, like, you know, you're all kind of neat and tidy people right now in this room. <laughs> Um, we're so often like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who is praying and look, he's praying in the same room as a tax collector and he just says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. Thank you that I'm not like that. Several years ago, I attended a three-day out-of-state conference uh, with a whole bunch of church leaders, a bunch of evangelical pastors and elders hosted by a mega church. There was great content, the, the teaching, you know, helping us be faithful to the word, engage our culture, support one another. Um, but I can't really tell you what any of that said. Like Tim Keller was a speaker at this thing. I mean, it was cool. And I cannot tell you much of what he said, and I'll tell you why. Because on the second day, near the second day of the conference, this church, you know, they, they were providing uh, internet to us, and their servers had, you know, uh, a system that flagged when devices on the system were accessing inappropriate content, particularly pornographic content. Hundreds and hundreds of flags in this conference of pastors and elders, church leaders, like that was us. And the whole tenor, you know, we like, we changed the tone of the conference. Guys, this is us. These are our church leaders. That group was among the culture, the evangelical culture, right, that has found an identity for holding tr to traditional biblical sexual standards. And we were exposed in our own brokenness in that moment. And also being not very tech savvy. We cannot point the finger. If God is just, if God is truly just, I can be certain of only one thing. I'm Sodom. And if I'm Sodom, then justice is terrifying. So right after my heart cries out for justice, my heart begs for mercy. So let's talk about Lot for a minute. This is the end of Lot's storyline in Genesis. He's been with us since chapter 12. Here he is in chapter 19. And Lot's storyline, by and large, has shown us a fool. He's been a fool almost the whole time. Let me count the ways. First, when his herdsmen are arguing with Abram's herdsmen, Abram offers Lot a choice of land. You know, Abram, the, the respectable older one, the one that Lot should have, you know, said, no, 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 whatever you want. 
Lot looks around and chooses the lush, most luxurious region and moves in with the people of Sodom, who were already known for being, and I quote, extremely wicked rebels against the Lord. Second, when living amongst those people, Lot gets caught up in their tribal warfare and, and you know, he's swept away and, as a prisoner of war and Abram has to go rescue him and Abram does. And Lot moves back to Sodom after that. Like, what, what, where are you going? Third, when Lot is trying to protect his visitors in our passage, he offers his daughters as a solution. It's meant to show how foolish he is. This is an evil solution to an evil problem. Lot has to be rescued from the mob. He's supposed to be protecting his visitors, and he has to be rescued. When, when they say, hey, get all your family and leave, Lot goes around to his family and begs them to go, and they mock him. They mock him. It's showing, like, gosh, Lot's role here is weak. He, it, he bafflingly begs. You know, they're like, flee to the mountains. He's like, please let me go to a little town and then don't destroy that town. And they're like, fine, you can go to the town. Then he goes to town and gets scared in town and goes to the mountains. It's like, it's meant to show us Lot is a coward. He's weak. He allows himself, you know, there, at a certain point he loses control, but he allows himself to become so drunk that he's not even aware of this incestuous thing that's happening with his daughters at the end. So, if we're Sodom, maybe we're Lot too. Like Lot and his family, I think we want to have it both ways. Here's what I mean. We don't believe Jesus is warning that you cannot serve God and money. We, we don't believe that those who seek to save their lives will lose them. And those who lose their lives for Jesus' sake will find them. We think it's too harsh when Jesus says, someone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back can't follow him. All of that just feels like too much. We sort of want to enjoy the, the things of the world and be faithful to God and welcome the visitors, so to speak. Lot's family especially believed the values of Sodom were normal, maybe even attractive. You know, normal like watching violent movies to unwind. Normal like pursuing success in your career or your children's lives above all else. Normal like negotiating with God for a bit of comfort when he's literally just saved our lives. Why can't we have it both ways? Well, I think the answer is when looking at why Lot's wife perishes. Uh, salt, I, don't know, I don't know much else about the salt, but what seems clear is that the life of Sodom had become an ultimate thing for Lot's wife. Like, that's where she wanted to be, that's who she wanted to be. That was her identity. She had built her identity on the life there. And so when Sodom perished, so did she. The New Testament, th this is wild. The New Testament, uh, uh, especially the book of 2 Peter, calls Lot a righteous man. And if I've convinced you at all, that should be baffling, right? 
And it doesn't just say he's righteous because God made him righteous. He's righteous because of his heart's desire. He cried out for righteousness day and night and was so disturbed by what he saw. My goodness, how could this be? How could Peter write such a thing? I mean, there's a drop of nobility in Lot. Sure, there is a drop. Every other scene tells us Lot is a weak coward. But, but in the moment when he was in the most danger, when the mob was at his door, he went outside and shut the door to try to turn them away. I mean, he put himself at total risk there. You know who Lot is? Lot is Boromir. Lord of the Rings fans. Lot is Boromir. Okay, who's those? The rest of you are like, oh no, nerd alert here. But here's the deal. In the in the you know in the Lord of the Rings, there's the hobbits are meant to carry the ring of power to destroy it at the fires of Mount Doom. You know that, right? And so uh, their hobbits are little people, and there's this group of people who go to protect the hobbits, and one of them is this man, this noble man from, from the city of Gondor named Boromir, and Boromir wants to protect Frodo. He wants to, he wants to advance the mission, but he also believes that that ring is a weapon that will give his city victory. And slowly the desire for the ring overtakes Boromir until... In a, in a terrible moment, he's ready even to kill Frodo and take the ring. Frodo escapes, and you think, yep, I knew it, Boromir's rotten. But then the enemy attacks, and Boromir alone, the rest of the protectors are gone. Boromir alone fights, fights off the enemy, holds them back, protects the hobbits, sacrifices his own life to save them. That's Lot in this moment. Like, you, we have complicated feelings about Boromir, but we want to love him after that happens. Why was Lot rescued even when he hesitated? Let me point you to two verses in this whole chapter that give us a little hint. Verse 16, the Lord had compassion on them. Lot is a fool. He's bumbling. He's confused, twisted between the world and the Lord, all of that. He has mixed motives, competing desires. And in all of that, something about Lot evoked God's compassion. This is just like Jesus saying, a doctor does not come for the healthy, but for the sick. God was drawn to Lot. Lot lets him in. He's a hot mess. And like a loving father, God longs for his healing. We can reject the Lord's compassion. That's what the residents of Sodom did. But, but when he comes for us, we can let him in. Eventually, Lot was forced to see that he was powerless against the storm. I mean, he had to be rescued from this whole thing. That was the Lord's compassion. And in verse 29, there's this scene, scene change. We get Abram, Abraham for two sentences. And Abraham goes and looks at the destruction, and it says, God granted Abraham's request. He rescued, he removed Lot in the midst of the destruction. What a stunning picture. Why was, why was Lot later regarded as righteous? Well, yes, he, in the moment, the, the hottest, hardest moment, he is disturbed and tries to hold back. He stands against the wickedness, yes. But I think the bigger story is that God's covenant partner, Abraham, 
interceded for his nephew. He cried out for him. This is the man, Abraham, through whom God planned to reintroduce himself to creation. It's no small thing that God had called, has called us to be his people. Now we stand with him for the broken in the world. I hope we can have the boldness of Abraham and plead for the people in our lives. The ones you feel are the most broken. Lot is the black sheep of the family, you guys. And Abraham is pleading for him. God's justice is a subset of his compassion, not the other way around. All that he does is an act of love, an act of compassion, the rebuke of a loving parent who wants the best for his child. And when all else is lost, God is showing his children, the people of Israel in the wilderness and us today, that he will honor the request of his people. Like the neighbor who goes to his neighbor in the middle of the night saying, hey, visitors have just shown up and I don't have enough food for them. Give me some food. God will honor our request. It's so important. We write down names of people to pray for each week. God will honor our request. Come with me now to the cross of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus hangs on the cross and people are mocking him, he's been tortured almost to the point of death. Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's the prayer for Sodom. That's the prayer for Lot. And that's the prayer for you. That's what we remember at the table. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it. He said, take this and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is Jesus stepping into the place of Sodom and being destroyed so that we could be rescued. That's the new covenant in his blood. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in your compassion for us, that as we ex understand how much like Sodom and Lot and Lot's wife and, and, and Lot's sons-in-law, how much like them we are, Lord, that in that moment, you come flooding in. You are drawn to us in our brokenness. You are for us in our brokenness. And we come to you broken. We come to this table, Lord, because you prayed. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so we receive your mercy. In Jesus' name.